We're going to study God's Word, so I hope you have a Bible with you. If you would turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Grateful that you're here, all of you live stream, and all of us here in the room. I hope we come away from our time in the Word. I pray this every Sunday, that we just come away encouraged, strengthened. I think the Bible has a function. I'm not going to take the time to prove all these three words, but that the Bible is truthful, hopeful, and helpful. And so I hope that that happens here this morning as we look at Scripture. We're walking through this series, Encounters with Jesus, where Jesus is bumping into different people in the Gospels, and, and he leaves a mark on them. Uh, when that encounter is, is over, there's something has, has been transformed in people's lives, and we've seen that time and time again, and we'll see it again in this sweet text here in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 38, if you'd follow along as I read from God's Word. Luke, the gospel writer, records these words. While they were traveling, he, that's Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken from her. So apparently a new word has been invented to describe a common occurrence in our culture, and the new word is this. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but it's spelled, I'll spell it first, P-H-U-B-B-I-N-G. It's pronounced fubbing, and it's a combination of two words, phone and snubbing. So it's, it's what happens when you are in the presence of other people and you're looking at your phone. You are phone snubbing or you are fubbing the people around you. I'm not sure the word's going to get traction. I'm not trying to give it traction this morning. It kind of sounds a little goofy to me. Um, but you can see the need for creating a word like that to describe what happens, right? We need words like that in our lexicon because we live in an age of distraction and we need words that describe what's happening here in this cultural moment that we're in, right? Um, I read an article this week that said this, quote, and this is from a survey in 2015. 47% of kids say they would confiscate a parent's mobile device if they could. Right, that was 2015, imagine that today. One article that I read described people in our smartphone culture as, quote, forever elsewhere. Forever elsewhere. Well, if, if human relationships are hindered to some degree by our distractedness, well, what about if we're distracted from God? And what if the irony is that we're distracted from God because we're so busy serving him? We're so busy in ministry, we're so busy doing things for God, service to God, that it's distracting us from fellowship with God, which is the very thing that empowers our service and our ministry to God and the service we do toward others in his name. So, so what if Christians, you think about this, had such a passion to serve the Lord, a noble passion, it's a good thing for us to desire to serve the Lord, to do the work of his kingdom, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, it's not frowned upon by the New Testament. But what if the people who are so eager to serve the Lord that we lost the ancient art of 
being still and knowing that he is God. How long could we do that without burning out? So this passage, I think, is here to teach us that there is wisdom in a purposeful rhythm of the Christian life of ministry for the Lord and fellowship with the Lord. That we need rhythms of both gospel Sabbath and gospel labor. And if all we do is gospel labor and we're not doing any gospel rest and gospel Sabbath in the presence of God, our labor, we're gonna, we're gonna wear out at midday. We're gonna wear out in the noonday sun of the work of the kingdom. So as we look at this passage, I want us to see three implications for our lives as followers of Jesus. If you're taking notes, the first one is this. Jesus calls us with great affection. He calls us with great affection. So look down with me at verse 38. While they were traveling, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Well, Martha lives, if we read the Gospel of John, we find out Martha lives in the town of Bethany. So we're two or three miles away from Jerusalem. She's got a place there. Her sister lives with her, so Martha and Mary. And Lazarus, her brother, they all live together in that place there in Bethany in that town. And it seems like Martha, this is inference, but it seems like Martha is probably the oldest sibling because she's the one who invites Jesus into her home. So she bears the onus. She bears the weight of hospitality. She wants this night to be exactly right. And nobody else seems to feel the pressure that Martha feels. Anybody ever been there before, right? You're inviting somebody over. This is a person you're not necessarily, they're not maybe a peer or a person you're super comfortable with, but it's an honor to have them in your home and you want everything to be just right. That's Martha. And she is not having her best moment because things aren't going great, right? And this is the honor of honors because look, in first century culture, to have a rabbi come into your home and spend the evening and eat a meal was a great privilege. And she doesn't believe this is just some rabbi. He's the Messiah. He is the long promised one. And he's under my roof tonight for a meal. And so we're not ordering Domino's. Not tonight. We did that last night. We're hiding the box, right? We're, tonight, I am preparing the mother of all meals. It's got to be perfect. I'm throwing my fastball, right? He's in the house tonight. And so she's feeling this pressure and there's frustration because she's slaving away in the kitchen. The guest arrives and the food isn't ready yet. And she's slaving away in the kitchen and she turns to her sous chef, Mary, on the right and she wants to know how's the, you know, how's the mushroom reduction coming along or whatever it might be, right? She looks at Mary and Mary's not there. And then she hears Mary laughing in the other room and she peeks around the corner and Mary's sitting down. She's sitting down on the job. She's sitting down with the guest. It must be nice, right? She's chopping stuff in the kitchen. Must be nice, Mary. And she's just fuming and steaming toward Mary. And, and her frustration doesn't just come out at Mary. That's, that's the interesting thing. Her frustration is actually directed to Jesus. Look at it, verse 40. Lord, don't you care? <laughs> that my sister has left me to serve alone, so tell her to give me a hand. In other words, it's almost like she's kind of saying, if you'll be less riveting, we get to eat tonight. Right? I need some help back here, and she was supposed to be helping me, and, and there she is hanging out with you. Tell her to help me. But, but what does Jesus do? And this is the, the whole hinge of the text, is instead of telling Mary, hey, go help your sister, Jesus says, Martha, Order Domino's. <laughs> this is Martha. You, she doesn't belong in there. 
you belong in here. She's pulled up a chair, and I got another one right here, and it's not like Jesus is patting the chair and saying, this, is, this one's got your name on it. Come sit down right here with me. Let's talk. Let's spend time together. Mary has chosen the right part. One thing is necessary. You got all these anxieties going on, but what I want is I want you right here. We've seen this before all through this series, reminding ourselves Jesus Christ, walking through the pages of the Gospels, is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the image of the invisible God. People have never laid eyes, physical eyes, on the God of the universe until Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and then we see him walking through the pages of the Gospels, which tells us what about God? It tells us this, God is not indifferent toward us. God is not indifferent toward us. How how do you see that? Well, you see it in the way that he calls Martha away from constant, incessant, anxious service. This is an ancient Hebrew device where if you wanted to call somebody's name and emphasize it and, and say it with great feeling and great tenderness and great emotion, you would say their name twice. And he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. The repeated name, it would add emphasis and it would add feeling. So for example, think about how this, is, how this takes place in other places in the Gospels. The disciples, they're on the Sea of Galilee and there's a storm like they've never seen before and they all are convinced, we're gonna die, we're gonna die today on the Sea of Galilee and the Savior is asleep and they run down, what do they say? Master, master, right? This, it's time for two names because there's a sense of urgency, there is a greatness in, in the moment, right? Jesus would say, He's talking to religious leaders about hypocrisy, and he says, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? You say Lord with great feeling and great emotion, but there's no obedience that's coming after it. It just doesn't add up. This Jesus who says Martha, Martha, is the same Jesus who will eventually say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The same Jesus who will say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you didn't want to come to me. It's, it's, it's a word of pleading. It's a word of tenderness. Come, Jerusalem, I just want you here. Saul, I just want you here. Martha, I just want you here. We don't have a God who's disinterested in us. The God doesn't say, you know, this salvation thing, take it or leave it. There's no skin off my back. It's there for the taking. If you want it, great. If you don't, great. Doesn't affect me one way or the other. That is not the God that we meet in the Bible. Martha, Martha is this tender appeal from Jesus. She's having a meltdown, isn't she? She's having a meltdown. She thinks what I need the most at this moment is a co-laborer in ministry. And Jesus says, no, what you need the most in this moment is me. So come in, pull up a chair, and let's talk. The church used to sing, have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about our troubles. We're invited in scripture to cast all of our cares on him, knowing that he cares for us. Jesus holds out his arms to a a weary world, and he says, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I got rest for you. You tired? Come in here and rest. I'll make you lie down in green pastures. Don't make me make you but I will make you lie down in green pastures, right? 
And here's Jesus, in a sense, he is embodying Psalm 46. He is saying, Mary, and you, Martha, too, be still and know that I am God. Friend, own this truth personally. God wants you to be with him. God wants you to be with him. He is not some distant, aloof, out there, transcendent only God. He is here, right? You know the message of salvation. What is the prize of the message of salvation? Why has God entered into this project of global salvation and global renewal? The end of the project is not you justified the courtroom of the tribunal of God's justice. That's not the end game. That's the huge problem that has to be dealt with by the cross in order to get to the real thing, the real win, the real prize, which is, which is what? It's us with him. It's, I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's why the celebration of the ages is not an exoneration party. It's a wedding feast. This is what I wanted all along. I needed to deal with the courtroom stuff so I could get here with you. Marriage feast of the Lamb. That's why it's all there. Jesus isn't calling any of us this morning with an air of disinterest. He has a passion to make you come alive, to come alive to him, to come alive in his kingdom. He died and he rose so that all who repent and believe can have life that starts now and lasts forever. And then what happens after you repent and believe? Now we have this relationship and now you got the comfort and you have the blessing and you have the peace that comes in the nearness of God. What what um the book of Acts, it tells people to repent, but notice how it situates it, that we would repent so that times of refreshing may come from God. So the repentance is on its way to the refreshing, on the way to replenishment, on the way to renewal. He loves to give his weary saints a time to rest. I think there's an implication here that's worth taking a minute, and it's this, complaining about how little others are doing doesn't make healthy Christians so that stings a little bit, right? It stung me. I'm kind of inviting you to the party. That, that stings. Because that's what we do as Christians, don't we? we? We peer out at the work that other people are doing. It's like, they look like slackers. Like, compared to me, I'm busting it real hard out here. Why are they sitting down again? What is going on? Why aren't they laboring as much as I'm laboring? You look at Mary over there. She's discipling middle school students, and I'm out here in Siberia planting the church. And I, I lost my snow sled, Right? So, so it's like, whereas you could almost flip that. There are some situations where if you're discipling the middle schoolers, you might think Siberia sounds awesome. Right, the classic case of the grass is greener on the other side. Who's making the bigger sacrifice, right? Am I seeing you? When you look at yourself, are you seeing kind of my tireless service to others and we're despising believers who are doing what Jesus says is choosing the better part? Because in this scenario, Jesus is not condemning. We'll see that in a moment. He's not condemning Martha. Serving in his kingdom is a great joy and a great privilege. He's not condemning Martha's service to him. But he's saying one thing supplies the strength for the other thing. And so one thing is necessary. And the other is derivative. The most direct application 
of this passage isn't, you know, my busy life is distracting me from time with Jesus, so I need to reprioritize my calendar. That's true enough, and we probably do need to do some of that. But Martha's not watching Netflix. Martha's not going to another t-ball game, and so she doesn't have time with Jesus. The situation here is Martha is serving Jesus, so she doesn't have time to sit with Jesus. And so that direct application is to us. Do you have time to sit with Jesus? to commune with him, to lay your burdens at his feet, to hear his word instructing you, renewing you, filling you, right? Churches and ministry organizations love us some Marthas, right? Because Marthas get it done. So we're looking for Marthas at all times, right? I'm not meaning to imply that our work for Christ or our place of service will never be tiring, It will be tired. Read the New Testament again. The Apostle Paul is tired. Probably most of the worthwhile things that are being done in the world right now are being done by tired people. The question is, are we as tired people continually building a place in our lives where we derive strength, where, as Nehemiah would say, where the joy of the Lord is the strength of the Christian, the strength of the believer, because Mary has chosen the one thing that's necessary. At churches, sometimes we can just throw everything against the wall and just say, I never met a plate, I don't want to spin. Let's just, hey, I like that idea, let's go spin that, let's add that to the spinning plates that are already going on, right? And there are certain kinds of programs and events that we as a church rarely or never do. And I like what we don't do as much as I like what we do. And the reason there are certain things that we rarely or ever even do is simply because, one, it takes a ton of time, two, it creates unnecessary dependencies, and three, Jesus never asked for it, right? There's a sense in which that's what's going on here is Jesus walks into the room and he says, I didn't ask for a fine dining experience tonight. I wanted you. I wanted time with you. Know what I'm asking for. Come on in here. Come on in here. Jesus calls us with great affection. Second, the core discipline of a healthy Christian is listening to Jesus. Listening to Jesus, you know. So Mary's in there, and it says she's sitting at his feet, and she's listening to his words. Don't miss this point if you're taking notes. Jesus is being controversial. In many ways, women were treated dismissively in the ancient Near East, in the first century culture. And Luke, of the gospel writers, seems to pay considerable attention to making sure this isn't lost on us, that Jesus brought his gospel to women, that Jesus included women in those who followed him, and he named them by name. And here, the language that's used in verse 39, you see it, you might want to mark it in your Bible if you do that sort of thing. It says, Mary was, quote, sitting at the Lord's feet, That is a technical description of what you do in rabbinical school when it's time to learn. School bell rings, sit at the rabbi's feet. How does Paul describe his rabbinical studies? He says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. That was seminary. That was him just describing seminary. I listened and I learned God's word. And here, the audience that's listening and learning when the school bell rings is Martha and Mary. Well, it's Mary and Jesus wants it to be Martha as well. It's the posture the students of Torah would take when listening to the rabbi. And this particular day, 
Jesus rings the school bell and he says, the school of Christ is open and there are two chairs in the room. And he says, I want Mary here and I want Martha here. I um, remember a conversation years ago with a uh, group of pastors who were together for lunch and one of them was concerned because uh, the women in his church were wanting to study a book of the Bible together. And I, I wasn't the only one whose head kind of tilted, you know, like when a dog hears a weird noise, it's like, hmm, did I just hear that, right? And so it's like, wait, unpack that? What, what are you talking about? And, and he said, I don't think women should teach women, wait for it, the Bible. And I wanted to come out of my chair. And I said, then what do you want the women in the church to learn? Do you, so, so you don't want them to be women of the word? Because <laughs> it seems like that's the goal, right? For men of the word, women of the word, boys of the word, girls of the word. It seems like that would be a really good thing for us to aspire to. And what he was saying, in essence, was that pastor was dipping his head into Luke chapter 10, and he was saying, Martha, you got one job, Fix Jesus something tasty. And Jesus said, no, one thing is necessary. There are many things you could be doing right now, but one thing is necessary, and it's you in here listening to me. It's you feasting on my word. You see the way Mary's doing it? Come, feast on my words. I'm so, can I just pause here and just say, I'm so thankful my children have a mom who loves the word of God, who, who gets up, that woman gets up every morning and she is in that book, reading it, drinking it in, writing down, journaling, studying something, praying. And we have in our church, the daughters in and around the church of Brook Hills, I'm so thankful they have mothers they have grandmothers they have spiritual mothers who are discipling them in the word women of the book what a privilege what a joy and that school started 2,000 years ago when when Jesus said Martha pull up a chair I want you to learn something join me in thinking about this text in light of who we are so next point is this as a church our first of eight pursuits is we abide what? Anybody know? Biblically. We abide biblically. You know, after God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and he brought them through the wilderness and he fed them manna in the wilderness and then he speaks to that generation. He says, let me clarify what was going on because there was a message in the manna. And here's what he says through Moses. He, that is God, humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat for what purpose? It was a teaching device. Then he gave you manna to eat so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that is Mary. She is hanging on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What was God saying through Moses to those people? He was saying, I put food in your mouth to remind you of the food you need most, which is my word. What the apostle Paul say? He says, here's a vision of a healthy church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let it get down in you. Let it dwell in you richly. What did Jesus say? He said, if you abide in me and 
my words abide in you, you will have my joy and your joy will be be full. You will bear fruit and your fruit will last. You know, there's such a temptation in ministry to entertain spectators rather than feed disciples. It's a powerful temptation. In our culture, preachers are told, hey, don't even apply for the job of the preacher of that church if you can't be three things, confident, inspiring, and funny. And friends, I hope when we look at our New Testament, we realize none of those words make the list. I have to be the most encouraged, happy pastor in the Western Hemisphere (laughs) because you don't don't leave me with the impression that you're asking for me to come up here and do a dance, come up and and, make us laugh, make it really funny, be super inspiring, make it a self-help talk. I've never felt pressure from this church to be that because it seems to me the impression that I get from you Sunday after Sunday is, Man, we didn't come here to listen to you tell jokes. Feed us the word. That's all we need. One thing is necessary. Give us the words that will help us to live and to serve Jesus on mission for his glory with joy. You didn't come to be entertained. You came for the word. I'm so so thankful. That is so freeing. I just got to tell you, that is so freeing. Where is all of our flourishing? All our flourishing is down there in verse 39. Look at it. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. What he said. This is the Bible that Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was a lover of the Old Testament, right? And then he gave us the words of the New Testament and the apostles bearing witness to it. Do you believe, let me just ask you a question. So this is a technical term, the authority of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture. There's a lot of talk about that, right? Do you believe the authority of Scripture? Do you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Here's here's what I mean by that. Can a command of God's Word single-handedly move the needle in your life and redirect you back toward Him? A single command of God's Word, can it turn you around? Because that's how much you trust that these words are true and that the words of God himself. Look, if our discipleship efforts as a church aren't producing an increase in our collective passion for God's word, we're not going to be able to call that discipleship for very long. We can call it something else. Discipleship isn't going to be the most fitting word. It's not discipleship if we're not learning how better to listen to the Lord, to rely on the Lord, to rest in the Lord, to lean on his strength, to run to his cross. That's discipleship. To live on mission for the glory of his name, that's discipleship. So final implication this morning is, number three, time with the Lord empowers us for service in the world. Time with the Lord empowers us for service in the world. Again, Jesus isn't creating an either-or scenario where service to Christ and his kingdom is bad and communing with Jesus and worshiping him is good. There's not an adversarial relationship between worship and service. That's not what's advanced here. What Jesus is doing is he's pointing out that Mary's priorities are in the right place. 
Not saying, I'll never want you to ever serve me or even do anything that smacks of service to me. Oh my goodness, read the New Testament. Serving the king is a great privilege for us as Christians. Actually, if we back up, you see the bigger picture. So look at chapter 10, verse 27. What do you see? You see the words of the great commandment, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor, serve your neighbor as yourself. And then what does Jesus do? He talks about the Good Samaritan, and he says, go and do likewise. Go and serve those who are in need. Go and give mercy to those who are in need. He's not anti-service. He's going to talk about it right after he says the greatest commandments, love God and serve your neighbor. Let me tell you a story. Good Samaritan, go and do likewise. Right after Good Samaritan, watch Mary. She's chosen the better part. She's communing with me. And then chapter 11, ignore the chapter breaks, chapter 11. Let me teach you this thing. I want to teach you how to pray now. When you pray, say, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see what's unfolding there? Three-pronged program of discipleship is the way of mercy, the priority of worship, and the privilege of prayer. And what's right there in the center is the one thing that's necessary, the priority of worship. One thing is necessary. You go back, this isn't the only place in Scripture that talks about one thing. You go back into the book of Psalms and Psalm 27, David says, one thing. If I could have just one thing of everything, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, to come near to God to be near, to live in his presence. As the Puritans said, we want to live quorum Deo. We want to live before the face of God because that's where the strength comes from. Jim Elliott, he, he burned it up, right, for Jesus all of his life, all the way to the end until he was martyred. But you know what he said? He had a category for the one thing that's absolutely necessary. Here's what he said in one of his journal entries before he was killed. Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. Listen to this. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Maybe in mercy he shall give me a host of children that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not... If only I may see him, touch his garments, smile into his eyes, ah, then not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. That's a man who became a martyr saying one thing is necessary. Three points of brief application for us. Number one, let's prioritize daily time in the word. Prioritize daily time in the word. Read Psalm 119. Get yourself a piece of paper and just start writing down what are the things that I see here in this text that God does in my soul when I'm reading his word. And you're gonna have a massive list. It's not, a five by seven is not gonna do the trick. You're gonna need eight by 11. You're gonna need the whole thing, right? Because you're gonna be writing down the comfort that comes to me through his word, the assurance that comes to me. In the midst of suffering, your word came and it was balm to me, right? He speaks, he gives joy to us in his word. I'm reading and I'm journaling slowly through the pastoral epistles 
these past few months, I've just been in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy so far. I'm just drinking it in. Have you ever experienced this where you're reading a portion of the Bible, you're reading it slowly, and as you read it and you meditate on it, you're like, I feel like I've never read this before. Has that ever occurred to you? Right? It's such a common experience for Christians. It's like, this is so good, and it's like I've never tasted it. It's like, it's like I'm reading it for the first time. Oh, what a joy it is to fellowship with God in his word. Whether we feel it or not, we're never wasting our time when we're taking in, drinking in God's word. Second, let's prioritize weekly worship in the church. But what does that have to do with coming near to Jesus? Read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a big, long argument that the new covenant's better than the old covenant. And the new covenant says, you can come and draw near to God through Christ and you do it together. Hebrews chapter 10, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, it is about coming near to God, coming near to Christ together as his people. Look, when, when we sing the word and read the word and preach the word and pray the word, we're getting stronger. I've said this before, God knows how to build a believer. And apparently, the way that he builds believers, a New Testament program for building strength into believers' lives involves weekly gathered worship. Not annually, not bi-monthly, not monthly gathered weekly gathered the most aggressively missional, world-changing generation of disciples in the last 2,000 years didn't think they needed less time together in worship, but more time. They met daily, house to house and in the temple. Couldn't get enough because it was filling their canteen for a life of mission for the glory of Jesus. Let's prioritize weekly worship in the church. And third, let's give space in our fellowship for the word of Christ to dwell richly in us. And there I'm borrowing language from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you're teaching one another, as you're admonishing one another, as you're singing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So you get this impression that the word of Christ dwells richly in us as it's reverberating across our lives in every place where believers are gathered, in our small groups, in the student building, at Apex, in this room, right? In, in your houses throughout the week, the word is reverberating and it's making people strong. It's giving hope to those who are walking through trials and walking through suffering. Dallas Willard was a, was a compelling Christian. He was a magnetic Christian. So many students. He was a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. He was a brilliant, brilliant man and an avid defender of the faith, an apologist. And so many people came to faith because he was their philosophy teacher and they would just go for walks and they'd talk about their skepticism and their doubts about the Bible and he would just show them by the way he lived this compelling, beautiful life, kingdom life. And before he died, Dallas Willard, he would write a lot about how do Christians stay joyful while we're working really hard. And here's one of the things he said. We must be very clear that the great biblical passages on love those cited above and others, including 1 John 4, do not tell us to act as if we loved God with our whole beings and our neighbors as ourselves. Such an attempt without the love of God indwelling us would be an impossible burden. We would become angry and hopeless. Kind of like Martha, right? Martha sounds hangry in our passage. 
right? We would become angry and hopeless, as in fact happens to many ministers and their families. So we must never forget that the most important thing happening at any moment in the midst of all our ministerial duties is the kind of persons we are becoming, I would add, in the presence of God. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. David knew this secret and wrote, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. That's that's the life of a disciple of Jesus. We set the Lord before us continually and because he's there, we will not be shaken. It's a sad story how often we're seeing Christians burned out used up. They come to a point where they, um, not only do they not love serving anymore, they hate serving. If they were honest, I kind of hate the local church because I've been used up and burned out. I was told to make bricks without straw. I was asked on this church staff or whatever to work 70 hours a week, give me 80 hours a week, just keep working harder and harder, spin more plates, and then they hate ministry. They feel like failures. They end up, hopefully, best case scenario, they end up going somewhere else where they can heal and be restored. I know people who are at Brook Hills for that very reason. I've had a conversation even very recently with a man. He's come up a couple of times after service to ask questions. And the way he even asks the questions tells me how toxic the church environment was where he came from. I don't know where it was, but it was so toxic because he asks the questions like he's walking along eggshells, like I'm going to beat him over the head just for asking that question. And what I want to say to him, what I have said to him is, bro, just sit down and just come back next Sunday and don't work and don't volunteer, and you don't have to be up, you don't have to keep up appearances, and let the church sing you back to life. Let the church pray you back to life, encourage you back to life, because God isn't finished with you. You're tired, but God isn't finished with you. Now, I come every Sunday hungry for what? for replenishment. And, and I can tell you honestly, almost without fail, I leave Sunday after Sunday because our gathering is saturated with God's word. I leave as if, as borrowing Spurgeon's language, as if on a couch of rest. I float out of the room after we've sung together. That's what Jesus wants for Mary. You can serve me, but not right now. Right now, come in. Take a load off. Let me fill you. Let's choose, as a church, one thing that's necessary.